This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my honor to introduce today to you our first keynote speaker, Dr. Robert Knight. Dr. Knight is a world leader in the new field of microbiome research. He's a professor of pediatrics and computer science and engineering at UC San Diego and the author of Follow Your Gut. He received his his bachelor's in chemistry, biochemistry, from the University of Otago in New Zealand, his homeland, and his PhD from Princeton in ecology and evolutionary biology, and did his postdoc work at Boulder. And we're just so happy that he's now a UC colleague. He is the co-founder of the Earth Microbiome Project and the American Gut Project, and he has many foundational discoveries. You'll hear about some of them today. He is, as you will quickly know if you look at the literature, a computational genius. He has developed the software tools such as Unifrac, Unique Fraction, which is now a standard tool in microbiota research. He's developed other software. He's taught himself programming. And he has been a big proponent for disseminating these big data tools to the small guys, to small research labs to really push forward the progress of research. He's shown, for example, there are differences in gut microbes where people, based on where people live in the world, differences between obese and lean people, and both the phylum level and changes in the level of diversity. And he has shown those first differences in microbiota based on were you born from a vaginal birth or from a C-section. So uh, we're, we're going to now get to hear what he's up to at the highest level, and we're just so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, great. Uh, thanks, thanks, Alyssa, for that very kind introduction, and uh, thanks to you and the rest of the SO crew for uh, inviting me to kick this thing off. Uh, this is a very exciting, uh, very exciting initiative that you, that you have here, and uh, I'm also, also really excited to uh, tell you about some of the work that we've been doing in uh, in collaboration with an amazing uh, range of different collaborators, including many of your other speakers today. So I'll try not to step too much on what they're going to tell you about as well. Um, so you might be wondering uh, why why is there so much excitement about the microbiome right now? And in some ways, it's almost like we discovered a forgotten organ, right? So we have this thing that weighs about as much as our brain, but it contains more cells, more, uh, more genes, and arguably even more complexity. And of course, what I'm talking about is our gut, or rather the trillions of microbes that it contains. So you might be wondering, what do our microbes do? And in addition to things like digestion, uh, which we've known they were involved in for a long time, uh, in part because of the advances in DNA sequencing and advances in the democratization of computational tools, uh, as Alyssa mentioned, we're finding out all kinds of things that our microbes do that no one had any idea they were involved with until very recently. Um, so, for example, your microbes explain why you're not insane when you go camping. So uh, I seldom get bitten by mosquitoes, but my partner Amanda gets attacked by them in droves. And part of the reason why is we have different bacteria on our skin that produce different volatile organic compounds uh, that, uh, that, um, that, uh, that they respond to differently. And it really may be true that you attract mosquitoes ten times as much as the person you're going camping with. So uh, it turns out that neither of you is a crazy one. Um, <laughs> 
Microbes are also critical in drug response, and Peter's going to talk more about this in his keynote later. Uh, but the first really great example of this was, uh, was acetaminophen, uh, the active ingredient in Tylenol, where, uh, where Jimmy, uh, Jeremy Nicholson's lab in the UK showed that whether or not it's toxic, uh, toxic to your liver de- uh, depends in large measure on whether or not you have a particular group of sulfate-reducing bacteria that some people have and others lack. And Peter's really pioneered... Um, driving this forward to a whole range of other pharmaceuticals that microbes are critical in the action of. Um, and then finally, uh, uh, microbes have been linked to behaviour. And so uh, if you're a fruit fly at least, and uh, this is working in Gene, uh, Gene Rosenberg's lab, if you're a fruit fly at least, uh, the microbes that you have determine who you want to have sex with. Uh, this, has not yet been, this has not yet been demonstrated in humans yet, uh, but I should caution you that it's probably just a matter of time before someone gets the right protocol through their institutional review board. Um, but it's kind of hard to do this sort of thing double-blind, and they hated our placebo. Um, so you might be wondering, well, how do our microbes do all that stuff? And uh, in part, they can do it because they outnumber us. And I should point out that there's huge error bars on these estimates. They come from back-of-the-envelope calculations, and you should take them with a big grain of salt. But a number you'll see a lot in the literature is that we carry about 10... Tr- uh, we consist of about 10 trillion human cells. Um, but then those back-of-the-envelope calculations say that we could have as many as 100 trillion microbial cells on and inside our bodies. So by that measure, we could be as little as 10% human. Now, you're probably thinking, well, hey, wait, it's not really our cell count, but it's our genes that make us human. So let's think about it, let's think about it at the DNA level for a moment, where we can be a lot more precise. So each of us has 20,000 human genes, plus or minus a couple of thousand, depending on what exactly you define as a gene. But the size of our microbial gene catalogue, when you consider all the microbes uh, all over our bodies, ranges somewhere from 2 to 20 million microbial genes. So if you're talking about the unique genes and the unique biochemical functions they uh, they encode, by that measure, we're much less than 1% human. And just like we leave traces of our human DNA on all kinds of things that we touch in ways that are useful for forensics, the same is true of our microbial DNA. So with Noah Ferrer's lab at Boulder about five years ago, we showed that we can link your fingertips up to the keys of the keyboard you type on and even your hand up to the computer mouse you use by the microbial DNA that you leave behind when you touch them. So this came out in the scientific journal PNAS a few years ago, but more importantly, it was on CSI Miami, so you really know it's true. And, um, and if you look at today's issue of science, we have a follow-up, uh, follow-up to that work in microbial forensics, where we can show that not just are microbes important during your life, but even after you die, the microbes on your decaying corpse can tell crime scene investigators exactly how long. And so we did this in a mouse model a couple of years ago, uh, the first intentional dead animal study that we know of in the animal facility at Boulder. Um, but, uh, but now we've been able to extend it to humans. But before you get too excited, uh, no, you can't pick people to enrol in the study if they're not dead yet and uh, if they don't agree to have their corpse used for that purpose. So anyway, in the Human Microbiome Project, which probably many of you have heard of, um, together with a consortium of about 400 researchers uh, across the country, um, including, uh, including a number of people in this room, actually, uh, we spent $173 million of NIH's money um, characterizing 250 healthy people at up to 18 sites in the body and up to three time points, uh, collecting a total of 4.5 trillion nucleotide bases of DNA, so A's, T's, G's, and C's. And, um, and so it was amazing how rapidly this leapt from the scientific journals, um, so, uh, so, so Science and Nature, in June of 2012, 
Um, just, uh, just a few weeks later, it was on the cover of Scientific American. Just a couple of weeks after that, it was on the cover of The Economist. So this idea that microbes really matter uh, is really penetrating public consciousness. And uh, the, results, the results of the study are kind of hard to understand. So uh, what, I'm, what I'm showing you here is plots of taxonomy. So what we're doing is taking DNA sequences and just turning them into counts of the different major kinds of bacteria, like the Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes and Proteobacteria and things you might have heard of. And I'll just zoom in on the gut, and basically what you can see is that different people differ tremendously uh, in what kinds of microbes are there. Um, although the encoding of microbial functions um, seems to be more static. So this is what we call the microbiota, uh, the kinds of organisms in a particular sample. Um, and this is a microbiome, the readout of their genes. And uh, what was amazing about this is that it confirmed work that we had done earlier in 2009 uh, with Pete Bauer when he was in Jeff Gordon's lab, showing this amazing functional consistency across different people, even when you have amazingly, uh, amazingly different underlying microbiota or assemblages of organisms in them. So this was a huge surprise to us at the time, although we realized that if we had spent a little less time staring at the computer and more time looking at the world around us, we should have expected exactly this, because it's what we see on larger scales. So if I show you this grassland in South Africa uh, versus this grassland in New Zealand, near where I grew up, then I show you this rainforest in Africa versus this rainforest in New Zealand. There's all sorts of intuitive similarities between the two grasslands and between the two rainforests, and all kinds of physical and chemical measurements that you could take would back you up on, that sim uh, on those similarities. Uh, but there's no species shared between these two grasslands, uh, very few of the genera, and it's only up at about the family level that you start to see some overlap. And so that's what we see around us. We see this incredible diversity in species assemblages uh, that lead to just a few consistent patterns in terms of how the ecosystems are arranged. And this is what we're trying to discover now in the gut. So, um, so this leads to this major challenge of uh, how can we map our microbes. And, um, and so what, what we've been trying to do is essentially uh, use all that DNA sequence data uh, to figure out who lives where in the environment. And, uh, for example, many of you probably uh, think of E. coli uh, pictured here as a classic gut bacterium. But the reason why you think that isn't because it's a dominant player in the gut ecosystem. Uh, it's just really good at growing in captivity, right? So you can grow it on a petri dish easily, but in general it makes up less than one in a million of the cells in your gut. So uh, what we have to do is instead of studying each microbe in its own cage in the zoo, uh, it's like you know, having to get out there in the rainforest and figure out what everything's doing and how they're interacting. So to do this, we turn to their DNA sequence data. And as I mentioned in the Human Microbiome Project, we collected about 4.5 trillion A's, T's, G's, and C's. And the problem with doing that is that the data look like this. So what I'm showing you is the first file of data from the Human Microbiome Project. It happens to be an oral sample from uh, one of the individuals at the first time point. And um, it's pretty hard to tell who lives where in the environment from this, right? And what I'm showing you is actually the first 0.1% of that first file. And there are another 17,000 files just like it. So uh, a large part of the challenge was, uh, was to develop software that could let us make sense of this. And so my lab developed this pipeline called CHIME, which stands for Quantitative Insights into Microbial Ecology. It's free, it's open source, you can run it anywhere from your laptop to the Amazon EC2 cloud to the 120,000 core supercomputer at NERSC, which is the largest system we've run it on. And you can now even run it on Illumina's base space and have it interpret directly uh, the data off your instrument. And so when we pointed at the HMP data, uh, what you get is this. So you get this kind of map of how all those microbial samples are arranged. 
So let me explain what's going on here. So each point on this map represents all the complexity of a single microbial community as read out by its DNA. So if I show you a representative oral biofilm, um, all of that complexity boils down to just one point on this map. And so we use a thing called unifract distance based on evolutionary history to put the samples on the map. And if the samples are close together, that means they have similar kinds of bacteria as read out by their DNA. If they're further apart, that means they have more different kinds of bacteria. So you can see patterns emerging. So you see a big cluster for the mouth, uh, for the skin up here, uh, for the vagina down here in pink, and then for the fecal samples down there at the bottom in brown. And so what's amazing about this is the algorithm knows nothing about the samples. It knows nothing about the people. All it knows about is the similarities and differences among communities in terms of the bacterial DNA. And one thing that's remarkable is that different sites of the same person's body, including different sites in your body, are completely different in their microbiomes. So if I highlight one person's oral sample and fecal sample, you can see they're in really different places on this map. But it wasn't until we cross-referenced the data to the Earth Microbiome Project, which is this crowdsourced initiative to characterize habitats all over the planet, uh, from the water, from the air, from the soil, from different animals and plants, that we really understood how profound these differences within the human body really are. So, um, so what we could do is we could go out there to the physical environment and ask what two samples are exactly the same distance apart in terms of their microbial DNA as the mouth and the gut of this one participant in the project. And so if you think of your mouth as being sort of like a coral reef, you have all these complex biomineralized structures covered in biofilms that maybe your dentist pesters you about. Uh, well, the gut is as far away from the mouth and that one person as the coral reef is, uh, this coral reef, in fact, is from the soil in this prairie in Nebraska. So they're essentially non-overlapping communities. And just think about that for a moment. What it means is that a few feet along the length of your body can make as much difference to your microbial communities as hundreds or thousands of miles across the Earth's surface. So these highly differentiated communities in adults may lead you to wonder, well, how stable is the microbiome? And, you know, can we really use it for forensics purposes, or does it just change every day as we touch different things, we eat different things, we meet different people, and so forth? And so to address this question, uh, my partner Amanda, who I have to admit has put up with a lot in the name of microbiome research, and I uh, sampled our microbiomes every single day for six months, uh, looking at our mouth, our skin, and our gut. I'm just going to simplify this data frame a little, um, and what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to animate this time series in the context of data from a whole bunch of other people. And so each frame in this animation shows our microbiomes changing from day to day to day where we just connect up the successive points. And what you can see immediately, and basically the dark points are me, the light points are Amanda, you can see uh, that the skin, even within a person, is much more variable than the other body sites, so the mouth is a lot more static and the gut is in between. And you can see that the, the daily variation does not outweigh the differences between the two of us as individuals. And this is especially interesting when you consider that we live together, right? So we have all kinds of opportunities to exchange microbes with one another. And yet our microbial communities remain different and remain stable. And, um, and I'm just going to rotate this around so you can see that stability. And you can imagine how tracking this, uh, not, just, not just out of curiosity where nothing particular is going on, but in development or disease, could be really compelling. And there's a decline in cost in DNA sequencing technology that finally makes it possible to do this kind of detailed tracking every day because it is literally a million times cheaper to do the DNA sequencing than it was just 15 years ago. So this may lead you to wonder, well, where do our microbes come from in the first place? And uh, if you have kids or dogs, as I do, you probably have dark suspicions about that. 
And all of your suspicions are true, by the way. So, uh, so it, turns, it turns out that just like I can match you to your computer equipment by the microbes you share, I can also match you to your dog. And, uh, but but don't, don't, don't worry, uh, that microbial exposure is not necessarily harmful. And in fact, Sue has been a pioneer in showing that uh, animal-associated microbes are in fact beneficial in terms of reducing asthma and uncovering some of the molecular mechanisms of that. Um, but in all seriousness, where our microbes begin depends a lot on how we're born. So uh, if you come out the regular way, uh, basically what happens is that all the, commu- all the microbes all over your body look more or less the same. Um, and so what we're looking at here uh, is, is we're looking at uh, babies uh, within 20 minutes after they were delivered, and then their mothers an hour before they gave birth. And this was together with Maria Gloria Dominguez-Vallo, now at NYU. And so if you look at the vaginal samples from the mothers in red, All the body habitats from all over the vaginally delivered babies, shown here in pink, cluster together with them. Whereas in contrast, uh, if you're delivered by C-section in light blue, all of the the habitats from all over your body look just like the skin and not like the the natural microbes that you would have been coated in as you went through the birth canal. And so one thing we're wondering at the moment is whether, uh, whether, whether it's possible that these differences in the baby's first microbiome explain some of the differences between C-section and vaginal delivery in terms of increased rates of allergies, of asthma, of atopic dermatitis, and even of obesity, and whether you could restore that first microbiome by inoculating with those beneficial vaginal microbes. So that's what happens initially, and now you're probably wondering what happens after that. So this is work we did with Ruth Lay, uh, tracking the development of one, uh, of one kid, her own, uh, over the first two and a half years of life. And so uh, you might be wondering why two and a half years. Uh, that's when he was toilet trained, and it's a lot easier to uh, you know, get the fecal samples out of the diapers than it is to uh, fight your kid for them after they uh, started potty training and they're really excited about flushing. Um, but anyway, what we're going to do is we're just going to track the fecal community from birth, and you can see that he's basically in the vaginal region up here, as we would expect from his delivery mode, um, all the way, um, and then the question is how much do they approach the adult fecal state over two and a half years, and is it a smooth progression, or is there a lot of change, is it more or less the same every day, or is it different from day to day? And each frame in this is one week uh, in the developing microbiome. This was put together by Antonio uh, Gonzalez and uh, Yoshiki Vasquez, two very talented grad students in my lab at the time. And so what you can see is that sometimes there's tremendous change one week to the next, and other times there's very little change. Um, And you can see that it's moving away from this initial vaginal state and starting to get down towards the fecal state. And one thing that's fascinating that's going to come up in just a moment well, so one, one thing you should note is what matters on these plots is how far apart two points are. And so, what, so because some of these differences week to week are bigger than the differences between any two people in the HMP, what this means is your kid really does look like a different person one week to the next, at least in terms of their microbiome. Um, so coming up here is fascinating. So he gets antibiotics for an ear infection, and you see this tremendous regression of the microbiome followed by this recovery. So that went by pretty fast. I'll just rewind it for you so you can see it again. Uh, what we're going to see is on administration of oral amoxicillin uh, for an ear infection, we see this tremendous regression of the microbiome in just a few weeks, undoing months of normal development, followed by a relatively rapid recovery. And then by the time we get up to two and a half years, uh, what you can see is that he's more or less in the adult fecal state, and he's been resilient to this. But that doesn't always happen. So, for example, Dave Relman at Stanford uh, gave three people uh, the same antibiotics just to see what would happen when they were healthy. One of them came back to baseline in a few weeks, the second within a few months, and then the third was still totally different at the end of the year of the experiment. 
And, um, and Pete, although I don't think he's going to talk about this today, has shown that even if two people have the same bacteria in their faecal sample, you give them the same antibiotic, it's not necessarily going to target those bacteria, even if they're the same initially. It's not necessarily going to target them the same way. So there's a huge amount that we don't understand about antibiotics yet. And uh, you might think that early life antibiotics, when there's all that chaos up there, might not really matter. Uh, but Marty Blazer's lab at NYU has shown both epidemiologically uh, in humans and in animal models experimentally that early life antibiotics have a profound effect on the microbiome later in life, including leading to increased, uh, increased risk of obesity. Um, we can also do this sort of thing cross-sectionally across people because the effect of development is so large. Um, so, with, uh, so, so in a study led by Tanya Yatsenenko uh, in Jeff Gordon's group back in 2012, uh, we showed that in an African population, um, a South American population, so an African population in red, South American population in green, the US population in blue, uh, going from very different from the adults to very similar to the adults happened within the first three years of life in all three of those populations. But what was fascinating is that the final state that you reach is very different in those populations. So here's the same kind of principal coordinates map I've been showing you, the same data as this plot. And what you can see is that age is the main factor structuring it, from the youngest kids in red to the oldest adults in blue. Uh, but you can see the Western population ends up in this totally different place from these two non-Western populations, even though the rate of approach to it is very similar. And so we think what we're seeing here is the overarching effect of diet in structuring the microbiome. And one thing that's really important to remember in this stuff is that it means that it's really critical to include a diverse group of individuals in your microbiome studies, because even large-scale projects like the Human Microbiome Project only focused on Western adults. And so when you just look at Western adults, you're just seeing this very small space of possible microbial communities. As soon as you look at children, and as soon as you look at non-Western populations, you see all these totally different configurations of the microbiome. And given, uh, given what we now know about the links between the microbiome state and drug metabolism, as well as the links between the microbiome and food metabolism, uh, this may be critical if you want to test a drug in one population and then deploy it in a different population. Whether you're talking about the context of foreign aid or you're talking about the context of doing your drug trials in Asia or in Africa, where it's cheaper to do the study. So you might be wondering, well, uh, you know, does all this microbiome uh, diversity really matter? And uh, as I mentioned, over the last 10 years, um, when, uh, when, um, when together with Jeff Gordon's lab and, uh, Ruth, uh, and, and uh, Ruth and Pete, who I mentioned earlier, uh, we were able to show for the first time that microbes were linked to obesity in mice. Uh, since then, microbes have been linked to, uh, to all kinds of different conditions. And so it might not surprise you to learn that the microbes in your gut have been linked to conditions like irritable bowel syndrome and inflammatory bowel disease. Maybe you expected that. Uh, maybe you're a little more surprised to hear that gut microbes are also linked to colon cancer and to atherosclerosis. And it might be really surprising to you that gut microbes are linked to rheumatoid arthritis, which no one in the field had really suspected. But the evidence for that is shaping up. It's pretty solid. And uh, coming back to obesity, uh, the evidence of gut microbes linked to uh, obesity is now, uh, is now very solid. And in, fa in fact, today I can tell you with 90% accuracy whether you're lean or obese based solely on the DNA of your gut microbes. So on the one hand, this is kind of a cool trick technically. On the other hand, I bet you're thinking, I can guess which of these people is fat, knowing absolutely nothing about their microbes, let alone anything else about their DNA. So we don't think it necessarily has a lot of commercial potential as a test for obesity, right? But, uh, but, but, but on the other hand, we can classify people as lean or obese with 90% accuracy based on microbes. We can only do that with 58% accuracy 
based on every gene ever linked in the human genome to obesity by genome-wide association studies. Um, and so what that means is that those three pounds of microbes in your gut may be more important for determining traits like obesity than every single gene in your genome. Um, we can also do this sort of thing in mice, where we can do a lot more experimentally. And uh, in particular, what we can do is we can raise them germ-free with no microbes of their own, and then transplant in microbes that we think are going to have a physiological effect. And, um, and, and so, um, so obviously you can't do this ethically in humans, and it would also take a long time to raise them germ-free to adulthood without any microbes of their own. So this is Jeff's notobiotic facility at WashU, uh, where the next uh, set of work I'm going to tell you about is done. And, so, um, and, and so, uh, so, the, so the first links to obesity with, uh, um, and microbes were with this OB-OB model uh, in mice, uh, and so this was in 2005. And so basically, um, basically, um, so, so, so basically a team of researchers in Jeff's lab uh, was able to show that if you take, uh, if you take obese mice um, and then you transfer their microbes to germ-free mice raised with no microbes of their own, uh, those mice gain substantially more weight um, on inoculation with those microbes than if they instead get the transplant uh, from, a, from a lean litter mate of that mouse. And so what's, what's fascinating about this is why it happens depends on the particular system that you're looking at. Uh, so with the OB-OB system, um, it seems to be primarily based on energy harvest, where they're better at extracting energy from the same, uh, from the same food input. Uh, but with another, study, uh, with another system we studied with Andrew Gewurz's group at Georgia State, um, what we saw there, uh, so these are the TLR5 knockouts, uh, what we saw there is that they actually changed the mouse's behavior. So uh, basically there's no difference in the energy content left behind in the feces. What happens is the microbes from the fat mouse uh, make, uh, make the other mice uh, gain weight when those microbes are transferred because they make the mice eat too much, and that's why they become obese. So you can cure them with antibiotics, and you can cure them just by cutting off uh, uh, the amount of food that's put in their cage to limit it to the amount that a normal mouse would eat. So they're hungry all the time, but at least they're not obese. Uh, more recently, um, in work with Jeff's lab, we showed that we could do the same thing across the species barrier. So now we're taking microbes from obese or from lean humans and transplanting them in mice. And again, uh, a fatter human leads to a fatter mouse when you transplant the fecal sample. But amazingly, we could design a microbial community from the microbes of lean people that we could inoculate the mice with to prevent them from gaining this weight. So at least in a mouse, we can manipulate weight by manipulating the microbial community with a designed synthetic community of known strains. Uh, and we can also do the, sort of thing, the same sort of thing for malnutrition. So with kwashiorkor, uh, a profound form of malnutrition that's also linked to cognitive deficits, if you transplant the quash microbiome into germ-free mice, uh, the mice do extremely badly, so they lose 30% of their body mass within three weeks if they're left untreated, um, and then they die. But you can rescue them with the same peanut butter-based ready-to-use therapeutic food that's used in the clinic to treat the children. And what we see are the, these profound differences in the mouse response and in their microbiome, only with the quash microbiome, but not with the healthy microbiome. And so what's really exciting about this is it pilots the idea that you can take, uh, you can take humans who are different in some phenotype transplant that phenotype into mice, then manipulate that phenotype with a nutritional intervention in mice in a way that mimics what would happen in the humans. And so the really exciting uh, follow-up from that is could you use that as an assay to figure out which therapy, whether it's nutrition or drugs or something else, would work for those human individuals? 
Uh, of course, the gem free mice are hideously expensive and we can't exactly deploy them in Malawi, but the hope is that we can move from this to an in vitro system and ultimately to a primarily computational system where from a sample or two of your stool, we could predict what would happen to you with different diets, uh, with different drugs and with other different <coughs> interventions uh, if you did different things going forward. Um, so part of the reason I'm talking about these fecal transplants is that you can also transplant behavior by transplanting the feces. And this is what's especially exciting. Uh, this, is, this is from a group at McMaster published a few years ago, where basically what they found is if you take two strains of mice that differ in behavior, and in this case we're looking at a test that measures anxiety, you can swap the behavior between those two kinds of mice by swapping their microbiomes if you raise them germ-free. Um, and so, so, so following up on this, um, Cyprus Masmanian at Caltech has been doing some fascinating work uh, looking at a mouse model of autism. And uh, again, you have this very clear link between the microbiome and behavior, uh, where what they're able to do is they're able to, sim uh, to stimulate uh, features that resemble autism in mice by simulating a viral attack by injecting double-stranded RNA into the mothers. What happens then is that the pups develop cognitive deficits, uh, they develop social deficits, they have repetitive behavior, uh, there's communications deficits, they also have GI barrier dysfunction. Uh, but but Sarkis was able to show that you could restore uh, many of these, uh, you could restore many of these mice basically to health, except for some of the social deficits, by using a, a probiotic naturally found in the human gut. And so this, this suggests the following pipeline for these studies. Uh, where in the lab you can basically simulate a model, uh, look for a dysbiosis, um, and then for particular metabolites that are associated with that dysbiosis. Uh, then figure out how to correct the animal back to health by a range of interventions that target the microbiome, and then ultimately uh, apply the same pipeline in humans. Um, I'm going to skip this bit on genetics uh, and, and just, uh, just get along to uh, why, uh, the, the crowdsourcing part of this. And so um, especially with the success of these, uh, these projects funded by the government and funded by large-scale uh, uh, large private foundations, um, a lot of people have got interested in how they can participate in this kind of research. Uh, so over Thanksgiving of 2012, uh, Jeff Leach and I uh, launched this project called American Gut, um, which is a collaboration between the Earth Microbiome Project and the Human Food Project. Uh, so it's a true open access citizen science initiative. And uh, essentially the idea is that, what, uh, is, is that um, in this IRB approved project, what people do is they send us, um, they, they send us their samples in the mail. Uh, the sequencing of those samples is supported primarily by their own donations. So um, essentially this is $99 increments from members of the general public. Um, and then we can tell them where they are on this map related to other people and, uh, and increasingly related to different disease populations. And so we launched this over Thanksgiving because for some reason that's a time when a lot of Americans are thinking about their gut. I don't know why. Turns out that not everyone wants to know what's in there. So these are middle school, so, so these are middle school students uh, touring our lab. And Daniel McDonald, uh, one of the very talented uh, grad students who's been working on the project, uh, is explaining to them that literally we're going to use lasers and robots to look at the bacteria in their poop. Um, but a lot of people have been fascinated to find out. And at this point, we've raised well over a million dollars, uh, shipped out over 9,000 kits, and over 5,000, actually it's over 6,000 now, samples have been sequenced, and you can download all the sequencing data from EBI, um, which is the European equivalent of GenBank, um, including 400 samples from PGP to participants where their complete human genome is also sequenced and available. But we still need more to get at uh, all, all kinds of different combinations of the conditions, uh, get at rare populations, and get at the highly individualized responses that depend on the microbiome. Uh, but what, what you get out of this, what you can see is the data from our project 
is highly concordant with the Human Microbiome Project data. And so what we're doing is we're using consistent published protocols, exactly the same as what we've done with the almost 100,000 samples we've processed in the Earth Microbiome Project and related projects to ensure that the data quality and the processing pipeline and the lab techniques are all exactly consistent across projects so you can compare results. And so what you get out of this is basically a readout of your microbes compared to people of the same age, gender, weight, and so forth. Uh, Michael Pollan, uh, the food writer, was one of the early and enthusiastic participants in the project and is a famous omnivore, and, uh, uh, as in his book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. And he also agreed that everyone could be compared to him as a kind of reference standard. Um, so uh, you'll see that comparison as well. And basically we tell you what's common in your sample, uh, what's common in you relative to other people, and place your sample relative to different body sites, relative to different human populations around the world, um, and relative to the American gut population as a whole. So, um, so, so with sampling on the scale, we're finding all sorts of links to the microbiome that nobody expected. So you probably expected that how old you are affects your microbiome, but you might not have expected that how much you sleep at night also affects your microbiome, but it's equally statistically significant as an effect. And uh, fascinatingly, um, we, we, can find, we can find out all sorts of things about what matters and what doesn't matter in microbiome studies. So these are power calculations done by Justine Debelius, who just completed her PhD uh, in, 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 my, in my lab and is uh, graduating next week. And so what we're looking at is the number of people per group you need to see an effect uh, versus, um, versus the statistical power of the test. So this is 80% power to detect, this is 100% power. Uh, if you want to tell your mouth from your gut, you only need about five samples per group. That's a very unsubtle thing that you can uh, do easily. Um, if you want to look at, say, IBD or antibiotics, you need about uh, 25 to 50 people per group. But you'll notice that one other thing right up in that part of the curve is the number of different kinds of plants you eat. And what this means is that diet can have as strong an effect on your microbiome as whether, whether you're using antibiotics recently or whether you have a disease like IBD. Then we can tell all kinds of other things like how old you are, how fat you are, what time you do the sampling, uh, how much you say you exercise, because remember this is all self-reported data, uh, how much you sleep at night and even how much you drink. Uh, you'll be relieved to know that uh, at least up to one drink a day, which is the top end of the, of the survey questionnaire, we see this nice dose-dependent response where the increased amount of alcohol uh, leads to increased microbial diversity, which is generally good. Although we think at the top end, uh, you know, probably bad things happen, so don't try to push it beyond what the, what the survey measures. <coughs> And what's really exciting is that we're using American Gut as a discovery platform where all kinds of other investigators can, uh, can do their studies. So one thing we've done since the move to UCSD is expand internationally. So we now have British Gut with Tim Spector uh, and Australian Gut with Phil Hugenholtz. Um, and, and then we're, we're expanding this uh, massively internationally over the next year or two. Um, we've been looking at a lot of clinically significant, uh, significant cohorts, for example in autism, where we're looking at 500 patients as an initial starting set, uh, set and then scaling that up with the Autism Centre of Excellence at UCSD. Uh, we've done some work with uh, Paul Wishmeyer at CU Denver, um, looking at intensive care unit patients, who you can see are totally different from the rest of the population. Uh, we've been looking at depression with Phil Strandwitz and, um, and, and Kim Lewis at Northeastern. 
Uh, we've been doing this intervention to see whether the reason why dogs make elderly people happier if you give them to them randomly is because of the microbes they share rather than because of other factors that you might consider. Um, and we just got the sequencing data back from that recently, as well as a whole range of other projects of different kinds. So the idea to set, the, uh, set this up as a research platform where many investigators can use the free software tools and the free open access data to investigate all kinds of different phenomena that would otherwise be hard to access, we think is a really remarkable opportunity for the community. And we invite all of you to participate. All of the data and all of the tools are free and available now, even though we have published nothing from the project. Um, so, so bringing this back to the mind, one, one thing that's been fascinating is using the American gut population to uh, look at things that we hadn't anticipated in advance. And uh, for example, um, when, when we look at things like GABA-producing bacteria in the gut, uh, we see statistically significant, so the relatively small but, relatively, but highly statistically significant changes uh, between the people in American gut who report not being depressed versus the people in American gut who, who report that they have been diagnosed uh, with major depression. And, um, and, and so what's fascinating is that we can then start to tie this back to the, the relative abundance of particular kinds of bacteria. And so uh, we, th we, think that we, we think that as we have this larger and larger cohort with better and better molecular characterization, as we introduce new techniques that we're developing in the new Center for Microbiome Innovation at UC San Diego, uh, we're going to be able to investigate more of these questions retrospectively in this huge population and also integrate the data with the many other uh, universities, many other medical centers, and increasingly many other companies around the country that are using the standardized protocols that we introduced in the Earth Microbiome Project and continue to refine through projects like, uh, like MBQC, uh, the Microbiome Quality Control Project with NCI and the, uh, the Harvard School for Public Health, as well as dozens of other participants around the country. Um, so I'm just going to conclude with, uh, with, with our most compelling example of why you care about where you are on this map. And uh, we're, going to go back to, uh, we're going to go back to a GI example, although, uh, as uh, Emron will tell you in his talk, there are tremendous uh, additional links between the, G, uh, between the GI tract and, and the brain in a, whole range, uh, in, in a whole range of different neurological conditions. But uh, here I'm going to focus, um, and this is just to reorient you, here I'm going to focus on uh, C. diff-associated uh, disease. And so Clostridium difficile infection is one of the most important hospital-acquired infections in the United States. It kills 14,000 people in, uh, a year in the United States alone. And, um, and, uh, and, it, and it's a huge clinically significant problem. And so what we're looking at here is we're looking at C. diff patients. And you can see these are all gut samples, but they look nothing like a healthy gut, a healthy gut community. And it's this profound dysbiosis that throws them into the middle of the plot, more, more along the lines of the skin and the vaginal communities than like a healthy gut. And this is work we did with Alex Karutz and Mike Sadowski at the University of Minnesota. Uh, it was published earlier this year. Um, and uh, again, Antonio and Joshiki did the data visualization. So what's going to happen is that four of these patients are going to get a fecal transplantation from this one donor. And so what we're going to do is we're going to track four of these patients over time and see what happens when you do that fecal transplant. Will their microbiomes basically stay, stay the same, or will it be like the infant time series I showed you, where you have this progression from one state of the microbiome uh, towards the normal, healthy adult state? 
And in case you're wondering what faecal transplant is, uh, I'm not going to go into too much detail, um, <laughs> except to mention that, uh, so this is Bill Sanborn, who's our chair of GI at UC San Diego, and uh, five years ago he told Larry Smarr, who's the director of CalIT2 and the Crohn's patient, um, that we would never do faecal transplant at UC San Diego, whereas now he's doing it relatively routinely, so these are so-called poopsicles ready for transplant, um, <laughs> using hospital-grade stool from Open Biome, which is a non-profit in Boston. And so, uh, anyway, so, the, um, so, so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to give four of these patients fecal transplant, and we're going to track them every day, and we're going to see what happens in terms of their approach to the healthy microbiome state. So I'm just going to start this going, and what you can see is immediately, within a couple of days, all of their microbiomes go into this completely different healthy state from where they were before. That only happens to the four people who got the transplant, and they stay in this healthy state for the several months of follow-up. And in fact, the last large-scale comparison that was done directly between antibiotics and fecal transplantation as a treatment for C. diff had to be stopped early because the antibiotics were 20 to 30% effective, which is typical. The fecal transplant was 93.8% effective, which is also typical. So the trial had to be stopped early because it was unethical to continue withholding the fecal transplantation from the people who were getting antibiotics and were not benefiting from it. So the question facing us as a field now is uh, for what other diseases now linked to the microbiome, including conditions that you suspected like IBD and IBS, uh, conditions that you probably didn't suspect like rheumatoid arthritis, and uh, conditions that have been demonstrated conclusively in mice but not, uh, I would say, yet in humans, like autism, multiple sclerosis, and Parkinson's. Uh, for which of those different diseases uh, can we do microbiome-based therapies that take you from a bad state into a good state? And for which of those diseases, um, for which of those diseases are we going to be able to do that uh, based on fecal transplant or prebiotics or probiotics or more carefully targeted antibiotics um, or changes in diet which have a huge impact on the microbiome uh, or uh, phage therapy or uh, all, the other, uh, all, all the other new generations of therapies that are starting to get into the pharmaceutical pipeline or that you could do uh, just, uh, just at home by changing your diet or by picking different ingredients. But what we need in order to do this is not just the support of a huge, uh, a huge community of researchers and a huge community of participants, but on top of that we need to go beyond this map and develop more of a kind of microbial GPS that tells you not just where are you right now, but uh, where do you want to go on this map and what do you need to do turn by turn in order to get there. And so ideally we need to develop this kind of microbial GPS and make it so easy to use and so ubiquitous that even our children can use it. So you could imagine a kind of smart toilet uh, that does an instant readout of your microbial DNA and perhaps your metabolites and delivers it to your smartphone, which, let's face it, I bet you're using in there anyway, and, um, and, and gives you an instant readout of where you are on the map today, uh, what your trajectory has been from the last few times you used it, and are you going in a good direction or a bad direction, and what specifically should you do, uh, 10 by 10 as it were, uh, to be able to optimise your microbiome for lifelong health both physically and mentally. So with that, I'd like to thank the large number of collaborators uh, whose work I talked about here, uh, many of whom I mentioned during the talk, so I'm not going to read out this list to you again. Um, our various sources of funding, um, especially NIH, Gates, HHMI, uh, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, um, and uh, the thousands of members of the public who've contributed to American Gut uh, financially and or uh, by sending in their poop. 
and um, the, the many members of my lab. It's been a true privilege to work with so many uh, incredible trainees uh, over the years. And, um, uh, and uh, the move to UC San Diego has only opened up uh, an even uh, more exciting pool of interdisciplinary researchers, including uh, clinical trainees who are able to work on this stuff. And uh, finally, I'd like, to, I'd like to thank you for your attention um, and, uh, again, for the invitation to be here. There's going to be a panel discussion later, but I'd be delighted to answer a couple of questions now if there's time. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was incredible. We have two microphones, so just raise your hand and a microphone will come to you. So when you're doing... A Fecal transplant, how do you screen the donor so that you don't get atherosclerosis uh, 20 years later or so many other things? Great question, no data. Um, so uh, one, 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 one thing that the American Gastroenterological Association is trying to do at the moment, uh, and I'm on the science advisory board for the Microbiome Center, uh, we're trying to set up a nationwide clinical trials registry uh, to, to address exactly that kind of question so we can have ongoing tracking of everyone who's, um, who's receiving fecal transplantation in the United States and so we can do sequencing of the donor and recipient and long-term tracking of both the donor and recipient uh, so that we can address those safety issues. Um, in general, uh, so, so all of the stool is, uh, is screened for acute pathogens, so you're not going to get hepatitis or HIV, but uh, the risk that you might transmit something that we don't know yet that we need to screen for is certainly present. And that's why the AGA recommends that you do not do it at home, despite the fact that you can just Google DIY fecal transplant and get a half-hour YouTube video that shows you exactly how you would do it with, uh, with a blender that let's hope you're not using for anything else and uh, a turkey baster that let's hope you're uh, not also using at Thanksgiving. But um, that, that's, exactly, that's exactly the reason why we need to know for a huge number of diseases what are the dysbioses involved and what are the risks of transmission. And uh, animal studies like the, like the transplants I showed you in mice are a key component of that overall research agenda. But, um, but we, really need to, we really need to look at faster-living animals over their whole lifespan to see if there's a potential for diseases that are only going to show up later. Um, by, by the way, the NIH rejected the grant proposal that the AGA put in to do that registry. Uh, it's, it's a couple of million dollars, and if anyone has ideas about donors who might be interested in supporting it uh, rather than returning to try to get public funding for it, uh, that's certainly something that the AGA would be very interested in talking with you about. So let me know if you're excited about that possibility. A follow-up on that question. Do you screen the... the donors for their medical history, their emotional health, and all, you know, any heart disease, rheumatoid arthritis, et cetera, family um, history in the, in the uh, donor? Yeah, so, um, so, so that, that's, that's another really good question. What Open Biome does is they screen the donor for a whole suite of infectious diseases, and they recruit the donor. Um, they recruit the donors primarily from a gym that's around, that's around the corner from their building. So they're getting people who are young and healthy. Um, one thing we don't have yet is we don't have predictive models for when you're in your 20s. Uh, we don't have good predictive models for what are you going to get when you're 60 or 70. Um, developing those is really important for the field, but it's difficult to do the longitudinal studies in humans, although uh, trying to get at it cross-sectionally and uh, trying to do it longitudinally in animal models is of a lot of interest. But, for example, uh, in the case of uh, dental caries, we've shown with our Chinese collaborator, uh, uh, Jian Zhu, 
that uh, you can tell whether a kid is going to develop tooth decay months in advance, even when their teeth look perfectly healthy from a clinical perspective, by looking at the microbiome. And it's entirely possible that one day we will be able to predict disease far in advance based on the gut microbiome, but we can't do it yet, and the longitudinal cohorts have not yet been assembled and studied. Um, so anyway, it's a good question. Um, from a personal perspective, if I were going to get a faecal transplant, I would definitely screen out uh, any family history of, uh, of, of mental illness because the possibility that it, that it could be transmitted is certainly there and it's just <coughs> completely outside current screening. But uh, there's really no data that would support that at this point. It's really a personal preference and intuition. I was curious about the role of breastfeeding in C-section births versus um, vaginal births in um, the microbiomes of infants. Um, yes, great question. So uh, breastfeeding seems to um, seems to partially, although although not uh, not a hundred percent, ameliorate the effect of C-section birth. And um, another thing that there's a lot of interested in, uh, a lot of interest in at present is uh, administering probiotics perinatally, um, which uh, which again in the few trials that have been done. Uh, they have tended to be safe, and, um, and then the efficacy has depended a lot on what particular strain of probiotic it is. So one huge, one huge issue with probiotics is a lot of people assume that uh, you know, basically any probiotic should do, but that's, that, that's equivalent to, uh, say, uh, thinking that any pharmaceutical would do, right, because they all have different effects. And so uh, I think we're going to see a lot of personalised uh, uh, personalized medicine basically matching up uh, the right probiotic to the right patient in the right clinical condition. And uh, again, that's a huge area that uh, a lot of people are getting into now. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.